Anyway, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to bless your name one more time through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we come as those who are already bowing by faith, as those that he has revealed himself to because he saved us, because he loved us, and he gave his life for us. And Lord, we pray for your church that it may bear the light of the gospel, that you may continue to shine the light of the gospel, that your people may hear about Christ and come to him as many as we appointed to eternal life. We just pray and thank you, Lord, for gathering us this morning. And we ask your blessing upon the words that you've given me to share with your people. May you give them understanding. May you show them how they came to Christ and the glory of this salvation. We pray and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in the book that we don't look like we are going to be getting out of soon. John 10. Sean was gone and we only moved one verse in four weeks. <laughs> John 10 verses 14 to 16. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And for our sermon title, it's still the same one as last week. I know my sheep. I know my sheep part two and that is election part two. I know my sheep. And that's good news that the shepherd actually knows his sheep. Because if he doesn't know his sheep, he may forget to bring some that belong to him. But the very fact that we are here and believe in the gospel means the shepherd was faithful to bring his sheep to himself. We cannot preach the gospel, the true gospel of God's free and sovereign grace without affirming the doctrine of election according to grace. And it is impossible to read the Bible and not find election. Election is everywhere on all the pages of the Bible. And God has been choosing from the beginning. God has been choosing people from the beginning. Choosing angels. He's been choosing men. He's been choosing nations. And he also chose the church. To Israel, he said in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to 8, he says, for you are a holy people, speaking to Israel, the nation of Israel. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. He has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Why? Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. 
for you were the least of all peoples, no merit in yourselves. God did not choose you because of your population size. You were not a great nation by any measure. If anything, you were the least of all the peoples. But this is what God says, verse 8, but because the Lord loves you, and that's the basis of election, is God's love. Because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage. So the love of God for those that he has chosen redeems them from the house of bondage, the house of sin. From the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that's the hand of the devil. As sinners, we also choose. We do exercise our freedom to choose. (laughs) But we make choices at our own level, the level of sinners, as those who are bound by sin. But for some reason, it's amazing that Sinners who choose things do not like God to also exercise the same right. We choose what we eat. We choose where to eat. We choose what to wear and not to wear and what nail polish to wear. And of course, we have to say the choices that we exercise are not at the same level as those of God. God is not choosing what shoes to wear. God is not choosing what restaurant to go have lunch. The level of choice that man exercises as sinners is different from the level that God exercises as God. And the level of choice that man exercises does not bring anyone to Christ. Because coming to Christ is at a level that is beyond the choice of man. It's beyond the power and will and ability of man to exercise. Our choices as sinful men do not determine anything. They don't predetermine anything. They are not the ultimate cause of how things are and how things will be. They are not self-determining. They are secondary choices that only work to fulfill God's sovereign and predestining will. It is God's choice, God's choice alone that matters because it is the first cause of all things and establishes all things. It was his choice to create or not create anything. It was his choice to have angels And man, it was his choice that some of the angels would fall and others be kept holy. It was his choice that men would fall and some of them be redeemed and others condemned. It was his choice that men would be redeemed but fallen angels left with no hope of redemption. It was his choice. It was his choice that you and I would be human beings and not cockroaches. It was his choice. It was his choice that would have nutrition from the food that we eat and not from eating grass and sand. But you see, I always argue that food only has nutrition not because it's nutritious, but because God makes it nutritious. For all we know, we could be eating sand and still be looking very good and strong. (laughs) 
You need a thin diet. <laughs> and so the choice that God exercises is at a different level than that which is exercised by his creatures. And this is not understood by many people who stand behind pulpits. The choice or choices of his creatures are not free in that they are predetermined. They are pre-programmed by God's sovereign will and determination. Human choices are only an outworking of God's sovereign determination. If God does not predetermine all things, if he does not predetermine all choices, then there's a good chance that something that he wanted to do could just be frustrated. If Stan gets up and is mad and is not happy with his life and God's purpose in life has already failed. If creatures decide not to cooperate with him, then he's we will be frustrated. But that's just the teaching of sinful men who are devoid of the knowledge of who the true God is. The true God of the Bible says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's no one like me. No one. So, in what way is he different from any other gods? He says, verse 10, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So God's purpose will be established by man, through man, and without man. He will accomplish not some of his good pleasure, but all of his good pleasure. The will of man does not operate at the same level as that of God. All planes do not fly at the same altitude. Some are capable of flying even higher altitudes than others. And so the will of man is not able to go higher than the nature of man. The will of man is not able to decide higher than the nature of man. But even in that, God is still micromanaging things to accomplish his sovereign will. God never leaves anything to himself. The roaches, if you have 20 roaches in your house, that's what God determined for you. <laughs> it gets that crazy, I'm telling you. <laughs> so it was God's sovereign will and choice to glorify his son because he loves his son. And as I have said before, love shows itself in giving. And so giving did not begin with Christmas presents. It did not begin because man decided to have birthday parties. Giving began with God. God loved Jesus and so he gave him a people to possess that he may be glorified in them. And these people would only come to God if they looked like Jesus. That was the one condition. Only if they looked like Jesus. God loves Jesus so much that he determined to create more like him. And that is why the scriptures say we were predestined to be conformed to the image 
of his son to the image of Christ, not to the image of angels. God loves to see the image of his son imprinted in us. And that is why Christ had to come and die on the cross that we may possess his righteousness and holiness. And that is why God gave us the Holy Spirit that he may sanctify us. So this is God doing this work. But when we are teaching the doctrine of election, this is a doctrine that men despise. They don't like the doctrine. Especially professing Christians. They do not like the doctrine. And they say, well, it can't be that it's God doing the choosing. It has to be us doing the choosing. And if God has chosen, he's only choosing those, he only chose those that he saw would believe. (laughs) So God looked through the telescope of time and saw that Stan was going to believe and saw he chose him. Good job, Stan. You are so good. So the issue that we have to settle with the scriptures is the basis of election because that is what is being discussed. That's the doctrine that people are not in agreement with God. They don't agree with God and what he has said about the basis of election. Is it God or man who chooses? Or is it God and man who choose each other? Who first does what and when? And many would want to say, as I said, God chose only those that he knew would choose him. But if that is the case, then God did not choose anyone. If God chose those that he foresaw would choose him, then he is not the one who exercised that choice. Man chose himself. God would only have responded to the choice of man and saw effectively man Uh, in the driver's seat. It is these that would choose Christ that become the deciders of whether Christ is chosen or not. Whether he ends up with a bride or not. And how many he will end up with. And so that just leaves Jesus helpless. It leaves Jesus desperate. And so Jesus then has to come as one who is on a fishing expedition. He may catch some good fish on a good day, but he may also end up with frogs that he did not mean to catch and has to make do with what fish decide to get into his net. He, like Peter, could toil all night, all night long and catch nothing. And of course, this teaching is plain falsehood and is man-centered. It glorifies man and not God. And every time that you have a teaching that glorifies man, automatically by default, you know it's false. <laughs> it puts sinners on the throne of God. And so when we are judging a teaching, we judge it by how much it makes of God, by how much it makes of Christ. If it gives glory to man, it is false all the time. Making salvation depend on man's choice And not God's choice is a false teaching that has filled the church, the professing church. And there is a motivation behind it and it is a bad one. And the reason is that sinners really 
Do not like a sovereign God because he debases them. He debases their sense of worth. He debases their sense of self-righteousness. He debases their sense of power and control. It leaves sinners helpless. And so these arguments against sovereign election are used to prop up a dead donkey hoping that it may just be able to carry a few bags of corn. It's a dead argument. It's a dead donkey. It is a weak and useless and desperate argument. It takes away God's sovereign rights and makes him a powerless creature. It reduces God to the level of a creature. And as a result, sinners end up being the sovereign ones. And God becomes their subject of mercy. Because if they don't choose Christ, then Christ is helpless. <laughs> if they don't open the door for Christ, then the door will forever be shut. That's the thinking. That's the teaching. And the other reason is that people have filtered their understanding of God through the lens of love and love only. God is love, but they don't really define in a biblical way what that love is. And their love, their understanding of God's love is the sentimental type, the humanistic love, the buy me some roses love, the kind that thinks that they have their names on Jesus' refrigerator in heaven. So carrying that understanding, they have shut out everything that the scriptures say about the whole being of God and how he actually works. They have shut out the glory of God in their understanding. Yes, God is love, but God is holy. God is love, but he also is sovereign. He is a consuming fire, and he is in the glory business. God is not in the love business. He is in the glory business. But for the God is only love people, for the God is love only people, God cannot send anyone to hell because he loves all without exception. And after all, Jesus died for everyone. And because of this narrow definition of God, they are left with one choice. A sinner goes to hell only because they failed to exercise their will and their power to take advantage of the free salvation that Christ made available to all. But in that scheme of thinking, Jesus did not die for anyone in particular. He did not die for anyone in particular. He only died to make salvation possible, and then he has to wait to see who can come and choose him. So then, salvation comes down to what the sinner does with Christ and not what God has predetermined in his eternal purpose. So the choice of the sinner is what makes the work of Christ effectual and not the blood of Christ. Faith and repentance become meritorious in justification and not the blood of Christ itself. Faith and repentance are not the cause of salvation. They are effects of salvation. They come 
because of the reality of Christ's finished work. So the teaching, the theology of free will does not have the eternal purpose of God in Christ. And that is why everyone who holds to that kind of teaching has no security of salvation because they've made salvation about you and your will. It is no glory of God in it. And that is why people are constantly losing their salvation. And that is why people are always dedicating and rededicating their lives to Christ. And we're going to have a rededication ceremony today. And when they rededicate themselves, they are finding ways to crawl back into the love and favor of God. But by what they are doing themselves and not what Christ did to reconcile them to God. And so the blood of Christ really means nothing at the end of the day. The obedience of Christ means nothing because it does not keep anyone that it redeemed and did not serve any particular people. And of course, the words of Jesus mean nothing in that context. What is important is what the sinner does or does not do with the blood. It is what they do that brings and maintains their salvation or their justification or their sanctification. It is their tithing and repentance that becomes the basis of justification and not the blood of Christ. And we we see this problem even with the tongue speaking. When people say you have to speak in tongues as evidence of salvation, they are moving the grounds of justification to tongue speaking. Because if you are not speaking in tongues, whatever version of tongues, then they are saying you are not saved. But the Bible does not teach that tongue speaking is the grounds of salvation. The Bible says faith in Christ is the grounds of salvation. Faith in the finished work of Christ Jesus. And so the whole gospel is lost in the process and the sinner is left on the treadmill of work again. They get back on the treadmill of work to try and work out their own righteousness because they just do not know if they have worked hard and long enough to be accepted. And a sinner will never get off the treadmill. You will never get off that treadmill of works unless you understand how salvation works. You understand and believe how God actually saves sinners. And many people are busy trying to bribe and bait God for salvation. I spoke to a sister a few days ago, maybe a week or so, And she thought she had fallen out of favor with God because she had fallen back into some old sin. And she said, brother, can you tell me what I need to do? Give me some people who can tell me what I need to do to get back in the love of Christ. And I said, sister, you never put yourself in Christ in the first place. So you will never be able to get yourself out. (laughs) And you can't put yourself back. If you're in, you're in. (laughs) And if you're out, you're out. Okay? It has nothing to do with your particular sin. Christ has already taken care of that. You'll find the help that you need to deal with that just for the sake of your own life, but it's not about salvation. And she said, thank you, brother, for reminding me of that truth. And I said, praise the Lord. (laughs) But many are busy trying to bribe and beg God for salvation. All works based salvation is an attempt 
to bribe God for salvation for something that God only gives for free. If you are trying to pay for something that is only given for free, guess what? That's corruption. Okay? You are trying to pay, you are jumping the line to try and get something that everybody else is getting for free. That is not good. So in this scheme of salvation, salvation comes down to God and man working together to help God in saving man. But the truth of the Bible is that God and man do not ever work together in salvation. God always works alone to glorify himself. God will not and does not share his glory. And there's only one way that he can do that. There's only one way that God will work. It is only if he does all the work of saving himself. And it is when he elects all by himself according to his good pleasure in Christ. And this election is done freely and that is without any cause or merit in the ones who have been so elected. It is not based on goodness or the wickedness of man. Election has nothing to do with anything that you are, whether good or bad. It has nothing to do with it. Romans 9, 10-11. Apostle Paul says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or any evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him who calls. Jacob and Esau, they were twins, and God raised them that he may demonstrate, among other things, his purpose in election. Because a lot of people will say, well, the difference between the believer and unbeliever lies in the fact that the one was more diligent. They just exercised their free will and they made sense by themselves to choose Christ. But God says, no, it does not work like that. I'll give you a case as an example. Esau and Jacob, they were of the same father, Isaac, same mother, Rebekah. And they were twins. You could not have said, well, the other one was born in Ohio and the other one in California. And that explains the difference. He says, no, they were born of the same mother and they were twins. It's not just enough for them to be siblings. No, they were twins. They were born a few seconds apart from each other. And guess what? They also had the same grandfather, Abraham, who had the promises. They had all these things in their household. And yet God says, I chose Jacob over Esau that my purpose according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. So if election was based on the merits of man, the good would boast that they were good. And the bad would actually boast of their own wickedness and say, Look at me, I was so bad that God had to choose me. I was so bad. In prison, people actually boast about how bad they are. And, and the very bad criminals are the ones who have glory in prison. So what did you do to come in here? Oh, I killed 15 people. You are the boss. 
And what did you do? Or I stole a car. Like, okay, what's wrong with you? So there is glory even in wickedness. If you are talking about men, men are going to glory in either good or bad, they will glory. And they are going to get worshipped for being good or bad. And God says, no, I'm not even giving you that opportunity. He removes all grounds of boasting by making Christ the only grounds of salvation. And because Christ alone is the merit of salvation, God then puts all his people in him. That their merit is not in themselves, but in him whom God has chosen. And that tells you something about Christ. If God hates boasting, and yet he is making Christ the grounds of salvation, that means Christ is God. It means Christ can receive and does receive all the worship and glory that is due to God. So we do not bring anything that is merit to him. And because there's nothing in us, we receive everything from God for free, and that is grace. Grace is God's gift in Christ to those that have no merit who have been chosen and put in him. And the gift to them is Christ and everything that is in him. The elect are given the life, the holiness, and the righteousness of Christ. And they become heirs with Christ. And if these things come from him and are necessary for salvation, then our response to the gospel is not something that we cause ourselves. And our response cannot have any merit whatsoever Why? Because we have nothing. We do not cause ourselves to believe in Christ because naturally we are not able to. And that is why Jesus said one needs to be born again from above to see the kingdom of God. And he would also say the flesh profits nothing. The flesh, whatever it is that you do, profits nothing. It is the spirit that gives Life, right? It is the spirit that gives life. One need to have spiritual life to believe in Christ. And God alone is able to give spiritual life to a spiritually dead person. And so faith and repentance are not things that we bring ourselves to Christ because we cannot generate them by ourselves. We have no power to generate faith. Faith And repentance require the power of God. It's God who gives us those things by his spirit, by his Holy Spirit. So that is what God gives and causes in those that he gave to his son that they may partake of the blessing of being in him. So faith and repentance are gifts from God and the elect believe and repent and become Christians. Christians are these who have believed and repented from their own self-righteousness to standing on the righteousness of Christ alone. And of course, some silly people will say, if God is giving us faith, are you saying God is believing for us? God does not repent and he does not believe for us. 
But he causes the elect to believe and repent to him. He turns them to himself. And in this, Christ gets all the glory of our salvation. And that is the true teaching of the Bible. And if you are even talking about the faithfulness of Christ, Jesus Christ was faithful to everything that the Father told him to do. He was faithful. And he also was faithful as our representative. So that when God looks at us, he looks at our faithfulness, not in ourselves, but in the faithfulness of Christ. So God was pleased with the faithfulness of Christ, the obedience of Christ. And so, because we were in him, when he looks at us, he is also pleased with us. So let's say some things, some more things. We haven't gotten to the part that, I'm, that I really like. So if this has been good to your soul, praise the Lord. <laughs> People are not teaching what the Bible actually says. They are bringing their opinions to the Bible. They are not drawing their understanding from what the Bible says. Men do not exist for men. Men do not exist to build new buildings and new cars and have fun. Men only exist because God determined to glorify himself in their existence, in their salvation or condemnation. And this truth is denied by sinners, men of whom unfortunately call themselves Christians. But we do not care about the opinions of men. We only care about what God actually says about how things work because it is his opinion that matters. So a true Christian is one who always takes sides with God for God and against themselves. They aim in everything that God says. They give the same testimony of God as God has revealed himself and has revealed his son and what God says about us. So it's not just what God is saying about himself. It's also what God is saying about you and me and saying we are dead in trespasses and sins. A man will object to that and say, oh, look, I still have ability. I can go to the mall and buy whatever I want. See, I'm free. No, you're not free. We are not free because of 4th of July. No, we are free because of the son of God who died on the cross. So the truth of the matter is, Salvation is for the glory of Christ Jesus. Christ is honored in our salvation, in the salvation of his elect, but he also is honored in judging and condemning the world. And those in the flesh who come and argue, the unbelievers, the, the ones that are not in the church, they're not the ones who are going to cause trouble with Romans 9. Romans 9 the strongest objections of Romans 9 against Romans 9 come from professing church people. So these are the ones that Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit anticipates their objections and says in Romans 9 verse 19, You say to me then, if God is sovereign, if God has chosen this supposedly bad guy, Jacob, the hill catcher, over a seemingly nice guy, Esau, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will, why is God still coming and judging people if he is the one who is running the show? 
So sinners want to find fault with God. And so they question his sovereignty. They question his justice. And they question his righteousness in election. They do not like, they do not approve of the way that God does salvation. And so they have to raise their hind legs, grab a microphone, and make an objection. Sounds like this is a some town hall meeting somewhere with Jesus. Jesus, I do not like how you and God are doing this salvation thing. I just don't like it. You can't have mercy on whomever you want to have mercy. You have to respect people's free will to choose. This is a free country, Jesus. We have the Constitution. We have the Bill of Rights and its amendments. You have to ask people for their permission before you do that. That hurts people's feelings. <laughs> That's the line. That's the town hall meeting with Jesus. Be nice, Jesus. You have to respect people. So the objector in Romans 9, the person who is raising this argument against Apostle Paul, they understand the issue. <laughs> because if they had not understand the problem, they would not have said what they said. So they understand the implication of what Apostle Paul was saying. They understand God's sovereign will to do or serve whomever he wants, not based on anything that the sinner did or did not do. And this is the point that many fail to believe and struggle with. And we can say it is a hard teaching. Who can hear it? But we can't deny the clear implications of what Apostle Paul is teaching. We have to submit to the rod of that teaching because it is some serious rod of sovereignty. But people will rebel and say, we will not let this man to rule over us. And so they cook up some nonsense of free will when they have very clear text that explains what actually happens in salvation. But listen, God does not say, oh, I'm sorry, Apostle Paul did not write that correctly. He does not legitimize the objection at all. And he dismisses it without answering the objection. He appeals to his sovereign authority. God does not say, of course there is righteousness in me. He does not go there. God does not say, oh, of course I'm still holy. He doesn't go there. He's still all these things. But he says, he appeals to his sovereign authority and power and reminds the person raising the objection of the pecking order and says in verse 20 of Romans 9, on the contrary, who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why do you make me like this? Will it? God says, let us sort out the elementary things of who is in charge here. I think we are having problems with authority. It seems you have forgotten who it is that you are talking to and who you are. Who are you anyway to question my sovereign right to serve whomever I want? Who are you all men? What title do you have? What title? What are your accomplishments? What is your CV? What is your resume? What is your expertise? That we may hear it. And that is designed to belittle anyone who objects. God says, first and foremost, 
This is the problem that we are having. You have forgotten who you are and who I am. You've forgotten. And the majority of the professing church world has forgotten who God is and who man is. God says you are talking about things that are above your pay grade. I am God and you are not. And because he is God, you have no right to question him. It is bad manners, children, to talk back to your parents. And it did not start with your parents. It started with God. God says it is bad manners to talk back to him and to demand an explanation of why he does the things that he does. Doing things contrary to the way that we think things ought to be done. And God appeals to his sovereignty and says, you are the clay, you are the thing being molded. The clay is nothing and it has no ability or power or will to be anything than what the potter determines for it to be. The clay is nothing and it has no ability, it has no power, it has no will to be anything than what the potter determines for it to be. The clay has no right to say anything about God, about what God has made it to be. And that is very clear language. The sinner cannot self-determine to be saved or not be saved. It is all in the power of the porter, God himself. And so human free will is a lie. It's just a lie. And does not determine anything pertaining to salvation. It may choose between having lunch at Beggar King or McDonald's, but that's the very most that it can do. Or you may have extra cheese and mayo too. Why is he working at McDonald's? <laughs> so this is the truth. Verse 21 of Romans 9. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lamp one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? God the potter. God is the potter. He has this right. He has the sovereign right over the clay to fashion out of the same lamp. And that means There's no difference among those that are saved and those that are not saved before God. It's from the same lamp. They are all from the one lamp of sinful flesh. But from this same lamp, God makes one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. The clay does not determine for itself what kind of vessel that it shall be. This is the God of the Bible. And this is how salvation works. And Apostle Paul goes on to say, verses 22 to 24 of Romans 9, what if God, so now he gives us the motivation of why God is doing what he's doing, what this purpose of God according to election is unto. Why is God doing this? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even as whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So God has made, prepared the reprobates 
the unbelievers that he may demonstrate his wrath and make his power known as he said of Pharaoh. For this very purpose I raised you up that my power may be shown across the whole earth. So he prepared them for destruction to demonstrate his wrath, his justice. And yet, praise God, he also made known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy. His glory known upon the vessels of mercy. So the vessels of mercy are there not because of their merits, but because God prepared them beforehand for glory. So it is all about glory. The vessels of mercy are these that he calls. Apostle Paul says, even us whom he also called. So the ones who are the called are the vessels of mercy. These are the ones who believe the gospel. They are not vessels of merit, but vessels of mercy. They are vessels of clay, which means they are vulnerable. They are fragile because clay is brittle. You drop it, it will break into pieces. So they can be broken anytime. So they stand only because he has carried them in himself carefully back to the Father. So this has nothing to do with human will. The free will of sinners is never an argument of salvation. Salvation has nothing to do with man's choice, whether free or not. The issue is not whether man's will is free or not. Salvation is only about God's choice and his glory. And so it is not true that salvation is dependent on the will of man. It surely does not depend on the one who runs or shows effort, but God who shows mercy. First Corinthians 4, 7. Apostle Paul says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? What do you have in salvation that you did not receive from Christ? You name it. God says, well, if you received it, why do you then talk about your will. <laughs> because you are saying your will is what makes the difference. But Apostle Paul says, no, you received everything from Christ. Second Corinthians 3, 4 and 5, the Apostle says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. To consider anything anything from coming from ourselves. There's nothing. There's nothing that comes from us. Our adequacy, our sufficiency is from God. So the sinner is inadequate in themselves to commend themselves before God as to be accepted by him. And so why then do men boast with such nonsense? Human will does not accomplish salvation. It does not cause regeneration. You are not born again by water sprinkling. You are born again from above. All the elect are born again, not of the will of man. They are born not by blood. It is not passed on in the family. Salvation is not passed on 
in the family like a trust fund. And it is not by the will of the flesh. It is not like having a natural child. It is only by the will of God. Those who were born of God. It's God doing the rebirth. He does it all by himself. But let us hear more on the grounds of election from Apostle Paul. Because we have to make our arguments from the Bible. And if someone does not agree with them, then that's not our problem. They are still arguing against God. As I said earlier, election is a clearly taught doctrine in the Bible. As I was looking and reading this past weekend, I realized that I could actually go and do 10 sermons on election because it's just everywhere in the Bible. The Corinthian church was having issues, divisions, ego problems. They were having problems with how they were handling the Lord's table. They had four super apostles. They had some dude who was having some relationship with his stepmother. And Apostle Paul comes to put out the foolishness by appealing to how they came to Christ, how they became Christians, to teach them of the truth of sovereign election according to grace, so as to humble them. Because men have to be humbled. They have to be reminded of how things actually work. Because all these divisions and all the ego problems was because some were thinking they were superior than others before God. And so Apostle Paul brings election according to grace to level the playing field. And to rout out these guys who were proud. So he opened by greeting them as those who are saints by calling. (laughs) That's good. See what Apostle Paul did not say. He said, you are saints by calling, not saints by good works, not saints by merit, and not by doing. And so he begins to work the doctrine of election. In 1 Corinthians 1.12, he said, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul reminds them and says, You did not become saints because you were baptized by me or anyone. You were not made saints by baptism. You were not made saints by the preacher that you had. Rather, you became saints by the calling of God himself and by the foolishness of the gospel message. And this foolishness of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And to maintain the foolishness of the gospel, God purposed to do things this way. Apostle Paul says, come on guys, you look around your congregation and look at the people in your pews. They are prostitutes, they are drug dealers, they are drunkards. And as I said, a guy having a relationship with his stepmother. And seriously, if you thought this was about human wisdom, would have the mighty, would have the noble in here. Would have the rich people in here if this was according to human wisdom. If this was according to 
human merit. That's what Apostle Paul is talking about. If this was about success or coming from high society, you guys would not make it because you definitely are not it. <laughs> Look around. Consider your calling. And by the way, that will be by the world standard of wisdom. But God's wisdom comes and turns things upside down. It has to turn things upside down so that no one that he calls would come and bust before him. Why? Because his ways are not our ways. And Jeremiah will say in Jeremiah, no, it's not Jeremiah. Isaiah will say in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, no, are your ways my ways, say the Lord. I don't think like you. And if anything, I don't even think. Because I know. <laughs> God does not think. He knows. We think because we are trying to evaluate options. God knows all things. And God says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And in Psalm 50, verse 21, God says, these things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. And men think that God is just like them. Men did not and cannot find Christ by their own wisdom, by their own knowledge, by their will. Science cannot find you Christ. You need to be born again. Because if that were the case, only the rich, the powerful, and the highly educated would be saved. You don't find Jesus by searching him on Google. Jesus has to be revealed by God. If the revelation of Christ was according to the wisdom of the world, only the powerful, the well-connected, the sophisticated ones with fine tests of wine, beer, perfume, and clothes would be headed to heaven. But God says, no, no way. I have to destroy the wisdom of the wise and reveal my son to the babes and to the suckling. God has to bring the understanding of the wise to nothing. Matthew 11, 25-27. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to the babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. God reveals Christ to the babes and the suckling. And Jesus praised God for hiding Christ from people. He said, this was so good. I'm going to praise you, Father, for hiding me from these people. And I'm going to praise you for revealing me to these babes. He hides Jesus from people and reveals him to the ones who are called babes. Babes have no merit. 
It is not saying he is necessarily revealing Christ to two-year-olds. No, he can do that. And he, I'm sure, has done that. But that's not the idea. Babes are these who have no merit. They are nothing in and of themselves. And Jesus praises God for his sovereignty in election. But that's election in salvation and revelation of the gospel. This Jesus, many pulpits despise. And so they do not preach this Jesus. And they do not preach his gospel. They preach you and themselves. <laughs> but it is in the power and wisdom of God in Christ and him crucified that elect sinners find the wisdom of God, are called to God and have righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It is in the foolishness of God that you and I find righteousness. In his foolishness. God has worked out this way that it sounds so foolish. And yet that is the way that he grants all his blessings. Hear this First Corinthians 1 verses 26 to 31. And we're just going to work out that teaching all the way to the end. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. I spoke with a guy in England a year or so ago. And he was objecting to election. And we are on Skype for four hours. And I said, open your Bible. And I opened mine. And I said, you read. And I'll explain and ask questions. And we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <laughs> And at the end of it, he said, brother, it's there in the Bible. <laughs> he said, there's no way that you can deny it. And I said, praise the Lord for that. Apostle Paul says, First Corinthians 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Apostle Paul says, consider your calling, see your calling, Think for a minute about this matter. Think about where you were in your life and where your life was headed. Had God just left you to yourself? Look at your own qualifications as things stand. If you do, you quickly see that there are not many wise according to the flesh. There are not many educated in the wisdom of the world, in the wisdom of man. Not many mighty and not many noble. You, you're not going to find the Queen of England, Prince Charles, and those guys. He said, look, at the church is not filled with celebrities. We have no Tom Cruises here. They are at the Church of Scientology, where the wisdom of man is taught. You see, Apostle Paul says, if God used that criteria for salvation, you all would not make it. You would be gone. Praise the Lord. They were and are still some wise who have been saved. Not many wise, but there are still some. Just in case we may have someone who is that educated, they may think they can't be saved because they are educated. No. The hope of the gospel is God does not say, I don't save anyone who is wise. He says, not many wise. Some who are mighty have been saved and are saved. And some who are noble 
were saved and have been saved. And so God still does serve from the high society, but not on the terms of their wisdom, not on terms of their power, but on his terms. So praise God for the few who are wise who have been chosen, few who are might and the nobles that also have been served in the course of God's work of salvation. But you see, Nicodemus belonged to this group. Nicodemus was a high to-do man. He's a, he was coming from high society. Nicodemus was a wealthy man. He was a powerful man. He was a highly educated man. And yet God chose him and he saved him. So praise God for that. But his point remains, salvation is not about being born into high or higher society. So salvation is not about your earthly privileges. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. See who is doing the choosing. See who did the choosing. God did the choosing and not man. And see the criteria that he used. He chose the foolish things of the world. Foolish. And so many people will come and say, I just don't know why God chose me. I don't know. And he has the answer. He has answered that. He says, because you were foolish. <laughs> yes, that's his reason. He says, because you're foolish. And many people ask this question thinking that and, and hoping that maybe there's actually some nice answer. Like, of course, you're cute. Because God just thought that you rock. And because you are the best and you have the nicest shoes and heaven will never be the same without you. And of course, God saw that you would choose him. That's why he chose you. And people are like, oh. <laughs> now God says, I chose you because you belong to the foolish things. <laughs> why God? To shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things, things that have no strength in them, that is no merit in them. Why? To shame the things which are strong. To shame the things that have power in them. And there are many who are powerful, who are beautiful, who are strong, who think they will trip right into heaven when they die. And many people have a tendency to preach powerful sinners, beautiful sinners, into heaven when they die. When Oprah dies, she is going to be Preached right onto the throne of God. A lot of people think Prince went to heaven. Michael Jackson. Whitney Houston. I remember I always talk about this one. Because I had the sermon when she died. One of the preacher dudes came and said, God just could not wait to have Whitney in heaven. He was so waiting for Whitney to come and heaven would never be the same with Whitney's voice. She will sing holy, holy, holy better than the angels. That's foolishness. <laughs> and that's the thinking of man. God says, no, it does not work like that. He has to shame the things that are strong. Verse 28. 
and the best things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Not only that, God has chosen also the base things. And the Greek word that is translated base means one of low birth. One of unknown descent. Of no family. They have no family. They are without any kith or kin. They don't have anything to their name. They are almost, if not worse than a vagabond. They are the base. And that means things of low value, the filth of the world. The filth. And God has also chosen the despised. Those that are looked down upon by the world. Sorry, those that are looked down upon by the wisdom of the world as nothing. And God has chosen the things that are not, that is, things that are below noticing or paying attention. This is what Apostle Paul is teaching. The base things. With the base things, one can actually see a little bit of fool's gold. It is like fake gold is, is a fake Gold chain or ring, there's some glitter to it that will draw some attention. But when looked closely, when looked at closely, it is base. It is base. It is very low value. But Apostle Paul says, God has gone a step further and said, I chose things that are not. These that have nothing whatsoever to attract God's love by the standards of the world or to attract even the world's attention. Things that are not. Things that are not are below noticing. Things that attract the attention of no one. Even the base are not attracted to things that are not. The rich, the poor, the wise, the foolish... All look down upon the things that are not and show no interest. No interest whatsoever. The things that are not, people do not even take for free. Like, oh, brother Robert, can I give you this? No. Even for free? No. You, you, You can? No. They will not even take them to ban as firewood or to use as fertilizer in their garden. They say, no, I'm not even taking that. It's just so below value to me. I I can't use this thing for anything. (laughs) They are good for nothing. No one pays attention to them for anything. Why, God? So that he may nullify, bring to nothing things that are. And this God says, I have chosen. Why? Look at verse 29. So that no man may boast before God. Why boast? Because men are going to boast. And God says, I know men. And I say no, it does not work like that. My glory I will not share with any other, even that of how a sinner comes to Christ. You may think it a small matter, but not according to Christ. 
God made men and he knows they will boast. And so he made those that he would serve in such a way that they are nothing before him. I want you to see something that is happening here. The way that Apostle Paul is crafting his argument. In this list of criteria, there is one thing in common. The chosen ones are nothing and God is everything. They are nothing and God is everything. And there is a hierarchy of the criteria or the characteristics or the qualities that Apostle Paul gave us. And he began from the highest qualities to the lowest human qualities. It is actually a scale. And he, on this scale, he continues to debase that scale right into the dust until nothing could be seen of value in the person. And that is why we say you could never exalt God too much and you can never debase man too much. Here's the scale again. Pay attention to this. The scale begins at the top. And Apostle Paul says, at the very top, not many wise according to the flesh. Not many wise. Not many mighty. Not many noble. That is the first level. At the very top. And then the second level, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. So the second level, you have the wise and the strong who are not necessarily very noble. And the third level, he says, the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen and the things that are not. So the things that are not are at the very bottom of the scale. And they are eight qualities which are descriptions of the lack of merit of those that God has chosen. And these are the ones that are the code. He from eternity determined that those are the kind that he would save and he made them this way. And my friends, only sin could debase men into nothingness. And so sin was ordained of God that by it he would strip all merit from you and I and then bring us to himself in Christ. Sinners did not make themselves this way. And this is why Adam had to fall to create a pool of debased people, of foolish people, people with no merit to shut them up under sin. The scriptures have shut all men under sin, right? Yeah. There is no other way to juggle this and we go our way out. If we are thinking and taking all the scriptural data on salvation, you have to come to the conclusion that the fall was ordained of God that when he comes and saves us, we have no merit before him. Zero merit. So men have become foolish and base only because of sin And this was God's sovereign and eternal purpose to create a mass of people from which God would draw these who come as babes. These who fit Jesus' guest list of the blind, the sick, the lame, and the deaf. It's still the same theology, right? 
Go and call the blind, the sick, the lame, and the deaf. Bring them into the great supper, the great banquet. And these, by reason of lacking merit, will know that only by his doing, they are in Christ Jesus. These that he just has described will know. Because they have no merit, they have nothing to bring before God. They are only are in Christ by his doing. And so Apostle Paul concludes the matter and says in verse 30, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, not our doing, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So by God's doing, by God's election, Sinners are put in Christ and are called to Christ. In his doing, in his electing love, his electing grace, he has brought sinners to Christ. And they are put in Christ who becomes everything to them and for them. They come to God not only by their wisdom or the wisdom of the world, but by Christ who becomes their wisdom Because he is God, he knows all the things of God. And they come not just naked, they come because remember, they are base. They come clothed with the righteousness of Christ because they have none. They were stripped by sin and that is why they need the righteousness of Christ. And none of the kind above would have any kind of righteousness anyway. And so they come with the sanctification and holiness of Christ, which God works in them by the Holy Spirit. You can't produce your own holiness. You have to stand only in the holiness of Christ. And since they were base, they needed to be redeemed. And Christ is their redemption. They were base and did not have a real or important family. Remember what I said about the Greek word base? It means someone whose family is unknown. They are almost a vagabond. They were base. They did not have any useful family relationship. But God has adopted them in Christ into God's family. And they have become children of God in Christ. So Christ becomes their all and in all and they are complete in him. So the base and the despised find all their sufficiency in Christ. The base cannot add to their works of acceptance by God. The base cannot add works to their acceptance by God because they can't produce any good work. They are saints only by election and are accepted because of Christ. Why? Because it is glory and more glory and more glory. And God purposed things this way. Listen, verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the point. That's what Apostle Paul is working the whole chapter to prove, to say salvation is not about you guys. And Things are the way that they are for one reason, and that is to glorify God. Because God does not bring anyone to himself who still has merit in themselves. So Apostle Paul would say, so then it is not of him who wills, 
nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's all about him. And in Acts 13, verse 48, Luke says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So election works out this way. Only those who were appointed to eternal life by God's election who believe the gospel. As many as were appointed. And the free will people who say, as many as believed were appointed to life. The free will say as many as received him were appointed to life. But that's not what Luke records and says. He says the opposite. As many as were appointed believed. So the appointing is election from before the foundation of the world. Appointment is what sets the stage for the elect to come and believe in time. So as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 and 14, says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God from the beginning chose you. For what end? For salvation. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these who were appointed to eternal life, these whom God chose from the beginning for salvation are called how? By our gospel. By the teaching and preaching of the gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of his life, the glory of his righteousness. And so Jesus would come and say, guess what? We are still in John. <laughs> would come and say, guess what? I have other sheep that have been appointed to life from before the foundation of the world. I have other sheep that fit the description, but these sheep are not of this particular fold of national Israel. And I have to bring them also. I have my sheep, I have my elect from Israel, but not only that, I also have other sheep. They too will hear my voice because they have been appointed to eternal life. They will hear the gospel and they will believe and they will be saved and they will become one flock and they will become under one shepherd, and I am the shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep. And so he says, verse 16 of John 10, we are on the same page, we are, we'll be done soon. Stan, I know you're hungry. Uh, we'll break your fast soon. Verse 16, Jesus says, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So the Lord Jesus Christ expands the boundaries of salvation beyond national Israel. And that is the understanding of 
John the Apostle, when he talks about the world, John was not saying the Son was given to save everyone in the whole world. Salvation was always a promise of those who were national Israel. The Messiah was to come for national Israel. And so John writing, he comes and says, no, the Messiah is not only for national Israel. The Messiah is for granting salvation to his elect who are beyond the borders of national Israel. So this is the world that John is talking about in John 3.16. So Jesus says, he has also the elect from among the Gentiles, you and I, who shall hear the voice of the shepherd. They shall hear the gospel. And the shepherd uses the same voice to call his sheep from the fold of both Israel and the Gentiles. He uses the same voice. All will be saved one way, and that is by the death of the good shepherd, by the same gospel. And Jesus is gathering together by his death all his elect into one fold. And that is why Apostle Paul would come and say in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 18, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now. Do you see what Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying to the Gentiles, you did not have the promises that Israel had. So you were considered as strangers. And so when Jesus comes and he says, I have other sheep, he is expanding the boundaries. Hear this, verse 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the empty, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. So those who were near were the Jews who already had the covenants. And we, the Gentiles, we were far off. But Christ says, I have my sheep in the fold of Israel and I have my sheep in the Gentile fold and I'm going to bring them together to one and they will all be under me. For through him, verse 18, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So you see the unity that the death of Christ brings. He builds all his people into one body. and. Now, because of that, we all have, the elect have the same access and by the same spirit to God our Father. And the Apostle Paul says, I guess he says, Amen. And I'll say, Amen. Because I'm done. Because he knows his ship. That's the teaching of the Bible. Christ knows his ship because the Father gave to him these people and he has called them and he has saved them. And he said, he will bring 
or his sheep to himself. So you don't bring yourself to him. And if you are in him, and if you have come to him, it only happened that one way. He is the one who did all the work of bringing his sheep to himself. So praise the Lord. That's the message of the true gospel. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless your name again this afternoon to thank you for your teaching of your election according to grace. For we were not among those who were wise according to the flesh. We were not those who were mighty or the noble, but we were the foolish things, the things that were weak, the things that were despised. We were the base things, the things that were not, that we may only stand in the wisdom of God or even stand in the foolishness of the preaching of the gospel, that by Christ and his wisdom we would have his righteousness and his sanctification and his redemption, that we may not boast before you. And so, Lord, we just thank you that you know us because we could not know Christ. And we only know him because you revealed him to us. And let that be always the testimony of your people and cause them to not glory in themselves, but glory in the Lord. Lord, we just pray for this message again as it goes out, that it will accomplish the work for which it has been given. We praise you, we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.